Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. About this time of year in the southern states of Australia, it gets cold. Not North American cold, but cold enough to snow on the beautiful Australian Alps, sending hundreds of thousands of ski-obsessed Aussies to the slopes. It's a $2.5 billion a year industry. Not bad for an industry that only exists for a handful of months each year in a country much better known for its beach-bumming lifestyle rather than anything to do with snow. And it's an industry that's undergone exponential change over the years due to a booming economy, the influence of technology, not to mention far more powerful environmental factors as well. And the person responsible for steering the industry for the past couple of decades through all these changes is Michael Kennedy. As CEO of Snow Australia, Michael's the longest serving chief executive of a national sporting body in the country. He's also an accomplished athlete, coach and expert commentator in his own right, someone who's delivered a phenomenal amount of positive change for the sport and country that he loves. So please enjoy this chunk of change with Michael Kennedy, CEO of Snow Australia. Hey, Michael, thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change. Oh, it's a pleasure, Steve. Appreciate you taking the time, mate. Look, you've been CEO at Snow Australia for 18 years, 18 years. Oh, yeah, it's a long time. (laughs) You were were telling me off air that you're kind of like a kid who at seven years old wanted to be an astronaut and ended up working for NASA. I love that analogy. How did you do it? Well, it's, yeah, it's a long journey uh, just to get there. And um, look, I suppose I was lucky enough as a, as a kid, um, just like a lot of kids that sort of spend time at the resorts with their families. My family was uh, into skiing at a, and uh, I got into it at a very young age. I think at, at about three, four months old, I was sort of heading down the mountain in, in the sort of with my head poking out of my dad's backpack up at Buller as, uh, as he skied around the mountain. And really from you know, the age of uh, two or sort of on skis myself. And then it was just, it's just something that has always been such an incredible passion, just, you know, loving being in the mountain, loving the freedom of, uh, you know, of being out on the slopes, being on my skis. And, uh, you know, it was the thing that really obsessed me in, through my early teens. And I just was something I just was determined to, to find a way, no matter what other advice that the career advisors would would put in front of me or whatever the survey might say I think one of them said I was going to be a car park attendant at one stage but <laughs> it was it was really the thing that captured my imagination the most and I think there was this drive and this inner drive to find a way somehow to sort of follow follow that passion and uh, and try to turn it into a career which I've been lucky enough to do I heard a rumor that you didn't even own a decent suit or a pair of shoes when you first <laughs> got asked to interview for the for the CEO role is that true it's very true. I just, um, you know, my, my journey to CEO was um, a little bit, um, you know, a situation where, you know, everyone lined up who wanted to be CEO and everyone stood back and I was the last one standing. It was, I suppose I, I came into the role uh, based on my um, you know, success in high performance as a, as a high performance coach uh, and a manager and really understanding that as an organisation at the time, we really needed to rely on high performance as a way for the organisation to, I suppose, gain relevance, gain gain traction, and uh, and have a place in the in the bigger sort of sporting landscape 
in Australia. And and at, the, at that stage, you know, it was a real basket case. It was a it was a um, it was a small organisation. There was you know two staff. It had sort of had some financial challenges, and so it really I, I think the reason why I was really blessed with the opportunity to to have the challenge to take on. The organisation was because I, I had a good understanding of, of high performance. I had a good understanding that if we could be singularly focused on trying to achieve really great results, then maybe that would lead us on a pathway through the system. And you know, the Australian sports system really, in terms of funding, relies on high performance success. So that really targeted approach um, to really dial in on a handful of our uh, sports or disciplines where we probably had a chance to be successful. That was really the focus. And I suppose with that success and some of the early pioneers in our sport, you know, the, the Kirsty Marshall and Jackie Coopers and then Elisa Camplin and, you know, then Lydia Lusseler and Tora Bright and some of these ones that were the first to to win medals and have sustained success, they were the ones that really, um, that, that we owe a lot of the uh, the success of our sport to now. You obviously loved the sport as a kid and then, and then you became quite an accomplished athlete. And now, you know, I think probably the longest serving sports administrator of any major sport in the country. That's bloody hard to do. I, I got to ask you, are you a proponent for doing what you love or is it more about doing what you're good at? I think it's really it's doing what you love, you know. I think, uh, and if and if this situation now with COVID teaches you anything, you know, I think it's a chance to to stop and reflect. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to be good at what you love, then I suppose that's an absolute bonus. But I think, you know, Finding a passion, being able to follow that, being able to you know have a sense of have a sense of purpose in your life. Um, to me, that's been something that has been a, a huge motivation. I mean, you know, absolutely, there are times, and particularly uh, in the early days of being a CEO when I was really green and you know, dealing with some horrible, horrible politics. That you're sort of looking at it, going, you know, this is not what I signed up for. This is not fun. But uh, you know, I think if you if you take the the longer term view, and um, you know, often. As in, as in all areas of business, if you surround yourself with the right people and, and, and good people and people that can keep you on track and, you know, you sort of look towards a pathway out, if you can sort of find that, then I think uh, that makes it, makes it bearable. So, no, it's, it's, been a, it's been a journey and it's been something that, uh, you know, the, the fun, the enjoyment, the passion is something that's been there pretty much the whole time. It's talked about so much, isn't it, in terms of, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life and follow your passion, you can live your dream, all that sort of stuff. For, I don't know, musos, for example, mm. quite often that's a little bit indulgent because how would you actually pay the bills in those circumstances? What advice would you give those people? Well, I think, you know, in, in anything you're doing, if you, if you are doing what you love, there will always be opportunities, I think, along the way. And I think the thing that I guess I've learned along the way is you've got to just take those opportunities. Even sometimes when you're, when you're feeling perhaps that maybe something's beyond you or you're not exactly sure where it's going to lead, to me, it's all about really just saying yes, taking the opportunity, really, you know, being prepared to fail, and I suppose understanding, you know, well, really, what is the worst that can happen if I if I really try something a bit different? And as long as it's, you know, in my case, it was still involved with the sport, and there's lots of times when perhaps taking big risks and, and definitely stepping outside my comfort zone. Um, but I think if you are prepared to take risks and you are prepared to look at it through a lens of if you do take those chances and opportunities present themselves, then you can find you can find a pathway through which can not only give you a lot of enjoyment and fulfilment, but you know, can also hopefully pay the bills as well. Here, here. So you're now the what longest serving CEO of any major sporting code in the country. I hope that doesn't make you feel old. 
Well, you're wearing it. You're wearing it well. I know people can't see you on this podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> what elixir are you taking that's allowed you to survive that long, Michael? Well, being married to a life coach uh, certainly helps, um, and so I, you know, early on, um, I was able to uh, put. Be- I, I guess one of the biggest things that have, has enabled me to see this much time through uh, as CEO is. You know, I've been really focused on putting boundaries uh, around myself, around my work life, um, and being able to just, I suppose, process um, the stressful situations or situations that maybe get perceived as stress as, you know, really in context. And, um, you know, it, it's nothing like a global pandemic now to kind of help you um, put all of those things into perspective. But I think I was able to do that all the way through. I mean, Sport brings out the best of people, but, you know, sport can also bring out the worst of people too in terms of, you know, the politics that can get involved. It's, you know, all of us would have sat back and, and watched footy clubs and takeovers and, you know, you know challenged for boards and, and things like that and, you know, a whole lot of really intelligent people in their day job who want to come and, you know, get involved in sport and sport decisions and high-performance decisions um, when re- really that's not necessarily the board's role to get involved in, in the high-performance operations. And so a lot of sporting organisations, a lot of really good CEOs, um, I think in this country get chewed up and spat out because of the often, you know, toxic nature of the politics of sport. And um, I guess one of the reasons why uh, I've been able to stick at it so long is we were able to very early on change the uh, the nature of our board to be a skills-based board, less representative, which I think has been a huge factor. So we've got really great skilled directors around. Um, I've got had a great chairs who I've worked really well with. I think, you know, for me in business, the role and the relationship between the, the CEO and the chair is really, it's, it's absolutely critical. I mean, you've got a, a chair that is supportive and can manage the board in a way that supports the you know, the CEO and the organisation. It, it, it's made it sustainable. So, yes, I'm an outlier. Um, I, it's uh, a little bit of good luck. Um, it's uh, a lot of uh, maybe early in, in the early days, a function of not really having many other options. That can be motivating. That's about all I was cut out to do at that stage. <laughs> but uh, but the last few years in particular, you know, hugely rewarding and our sport, you know, we, we've grown in relevance, um, you know, both within our own sports system. And I think, you know, when you, when you look at uh, you know, the Winter Olympic Games and you start to see the ratings that come through and, you know, a couple of the last Olympics have been in a favourable time slot. And I think, you know, when, when the, you see the audiences and engage uh, with winter sport and like a lot of Olympic sports, we really get um, that sort of once every four year real real chance to, to shine and promote. But um, I think there's something pretty special about winter sport and snow sports and, and the way the athletes go about it. And the achievements and changes that you've seen happen over the course of the last 18 years as CEO of Snow Australia, mate. Give us the highlights. Let's start with the the formation of Snow Australia itself. This is actually a relatively recent thing that's only taken place under your leadership over the last couple of years. Tell us how that's worked for you, Michael. Yeah, well, look, you know, I mean, the, the governance stuff, you know, it can be a bit, can be a bit sort of boring. Um, but you know, as far as being able to unify an organisation, um, take take a body that had you know, different states um, associations and lots of different interest groups, and unify it into a single organisation, we're the only Olympic sport in Australia that's been able to do that. So that has that has that has been an absolute game changer, changer, and, and something I think that that all of us who were involved in that have been. Sorry, for, sorry to interrupt, but people yeah, may not yeah. be familiar with exactly what you did there, Michael. So would you mind giving us a, a top-line overview of, of how you brought what was, in effect, a, a federated model 
together with a bunch of different state-based associations and known as Ski and Snowboard Australia, together under one now Snow Australia banner? It was literally sitting down, lots and lots of consultation. Before this exercise, I didn't really, I think, understood what consultation really meant. You know, I think consultation was was really that two-way street, you know, listening and, and being prepared to give up. You know, I think to be able to get something, you've got to give up something. And I think the thing I learned through that process was really sort of, you know, giving up some control over certain things um, and, you know, giving it more access and, and having more transparency. But at the same time, I think the, the biggest hurdle and impediment to a lot of these things is is mistrust and fear. And so if once people, I think, could get comfortable uh, that the trust was there and that on the other side of unification, they weren't going to lose their, their their role in the sport. They weren't going to lose their importance to the community. And we could, we could capture some of that, you know, in agreements off to the side. But really what we needed to do was move to a, a more modern structure. Um, once you could sell that vision, I think it was easier to get people on board. And then, and then also not promising more than you really could deliver. Um, I think that's what really gets people offside too, is when you say, oh, I'm going to do this and do this and trust me, it's going to happen. And then on the other side of it, you're not able to deliver on that. So I think we were really careful to to choose the things that we undertook and guaranteed and promised to do um, and worked really hard to deliver that on the other side. And what were the key objectives of the initiative in the first place? And how would you mark yourself in terms of delivering on those on those promises so far, Michael? <laughs> Oh, I think we'd have to mark ourselves pretty highly. I mean, it, part of it is still a work in progress. We've sort of only completed the final f- stages of unification sort of, you know, 12, 18 months ago. But, you know, it really was about having a single vision, a single voice. It, it was really about trying to convince everybody to look through the customer lens and, and try to put themselves in a situation to experience as though someone who's come into the sport and, you know, how would they how would they view things? How confusing is it to have all these different layers of, you know, different associations and, uh, and, and how all that fits together? So to have a single organisation, a single source of, of truth, if you like, a single uh, source of information and to sort of garner and gather all of everyone's efforts into a single direction has been a really powerful thing. And I think, you know, what, what we're seeing and the feedback that we're getting from the community largely is that it's, it's the best that it's ever been. So I think we'd mark ourselves pretty high. As if that's not challenging enough when you're dealing with a bunch of different industry bodies, but you're also now working, of course, with the ski resorts themselves in a really challenging time at the moment. But the largest resort operator in the world, Vale, now owns some of the highest profile ski resorts in the country. So Perisher, Falls Creek, and Hotham, all those ownerships have changed during your time as CEO. How do you expect that to affect the industry here in Australia? Yeah, look, it's going to be interesting. It's in its very early days and, uh, you know, Vale um, obviously has owned Perisher for, for some time now and, you know, a lot of what they've done up there, it's, it's, it's you know, really sort of uh, made the organisation and operations a lot, uh, a lot slicker, um, a lot more consistent. But, you know, you do get a sense that you're dealing with a big organisation when you're when you're dealing with Vale uh, and with, with, with Perisher. And they bought Hotham and Falls in the last 12 months or so. And I think, you know, I'm not sure whether they're sitting there regretting that decision now because we've just, uh, you know, uh, as we're recording this, they've just announced they're going to close the uh, those resorts for the rest of the season. So um, yeah, possibly uh, maybe they could have got it cheaper next year. Uh, but um, no, look, uh, and I think uh, the thing that's interesting is to see how the community has responded um, in that regard. I think... Um, yeah, you know, there's probably some 
perhaps scepticism about how decisions are made, whether they're made you know locally um, for the best interests of the local community. These resorts have always been you know very community as much as anything else. There's a local community that lives on the resorts and at the base of the resorts. But, you know, they're a, they're a very successful organisation. They bring a lot of financial firepower with them. And I think, you know, to be honest, with what the industry is facing um, this season, having come off the back of bushfires early in the year, which really decimated their summer trade, you know, it's a $2 billion industry with about 25,000 jobs that hang off it. That is in absolute all sorts at the moment because, uh, you know, half of it's shut down in Victoria. And the uh, the operations, well, one of the resorts burnt down during the bushfires, Selwyn, up in New South Wales, and the other two that are left are uh, operating on a reduced capacity. So really, it, I think if, it, if there's a time to test the financial resolve of an organisation, it's now. And I think at least having Vale um, and, uh, and a big balance sheet and a lot of experience um, will, will help the resorts get through. Interestingly, though, Buller which is the, you know, the major independently owned resort still in Australia, has chosen to stay open through COVID crisis. You got any observations on why they chose to stay open and why Vale chose to shut down the three other majors in terms of Falls, Hotham and Perisher? Yeah, well, I mean, Vale's taken a consistent approach. They've said it's based on the health advice and uh, and trying to do their bit as far as you know, not um, you know, not, not getting people to move around and uh, and cross pollinate communities. I mean, you know. It's hard to sort of argue with that decision, but on the other hand, you look at what Bull has done, and they're very much sort of said, "Well, you know, we think we can get our COVID plans in place, and we're really here, and we want to, we, you know, we really want to support the locals, and notwithstanding the fact that people can't travel there." Um, and that, I think that's what you're seeing is is the difference between a large organisation that's taken a view and that you know, took that view uh, with their North American resorts early in the season. So it's really hard for them to not be consistent with that approach in Australia when that was their rationale for shutting resorts during the end of the Northern Hemisphere winter. But Buller is family owned and, uh, you know, and the Grollo family, Reno Grollo, Diana Grollo, uh, the family are, you know, they are Mount Buller and, and they, um, you know, they will lose a lot of money, but they've done this really to out of the, the love and uh, the connection uh, and long time connection for the local community. And I know that the local community is you know, really grateful. And as we speak, I think there's still some uncertainty about if they're going to be able to operate uh, in the stage three. And that is, uh, that, that's on a knife's edge, but um, you know, hopefully they can. And it, it is interesting timing, isn't it? Because from my understanding, it's, it's probably not one of the better starts to a ski season. In fact, I, I believe it's from a snowfall point of view, I believe it's probably one of the, the more challenging starts, not just because of COVID, but also just because of a lack of snow on the ground that the industry's had in Australia in recent decades also. Which brings us to the other major change over the course of 20 years. I mean, you've been skiing on the slopes of Australia for, it's got to be 40 plus years now, Michael. Yeah, for, yeah, for, yeah, for 40, 45 years, yeah, something Purely like that. as a result of climate change. <laughs> like what, what sort of effect have you observed as a result of climate change on just the amount of, of natural snow that you're able to have fun on in the alpine areas of Australia? I think there's no doubt, you know, if, if I, if all any of us that have been around a while reminisce and we look back, I mean, we can remember the years of huge snowfalls and, uh, you know, cars being completely buried and, uh, you know, uh, and, and just, you know, metres and metres of snow and the whole mountain being open uh, for large um, 
portions of the season, and that was before any snowmaking whatsoever. And look, there's no doubt, you know, you get these big snow events um, now, but you know, they're, they're perhaps the, the the amount of snow, the amount of accumulation throughout a season, isn't uh, isn't what it was. But you know, having said that, I think the the thing that the that the industry has done uh, worldwide is um, that that's remarkable is how it's embraced technology and, and, and in some cases a bit of Aussie know-how to um, to really make the industry and, and the resorts viable in even the toughest conditions. And so obviously, yeah, this, I mean, COVID has absolutely masked the fact that this is a very, very um, ordinary uh, season to date. Having said that, the day they decide to move to stage four, it pretty much goes to minus seven and, and snows a metre. But, um, of course it does. Of course it does, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, but there's some pretty ingenious um, ways that we go about it, uh, embracing the technology. Snowmaking has gone from, um, you know, being something where you had to have a bunch of snowmakers run around and physically, you know, turn on all the machines. As soon as it got cold enough, you know, like a, a siren would go off in the snowmaking shed and wake up the snowmaker, like, like firemen, you know, they'd sort of wake up and they'd, they'd run out to them, get on their machines and turn on the guns and then, you know, sure as night follows day, you know, an hour and a half later, the weather warms up and they've got to run around and turn it off. And that's all completely automated. So those those machines turn on and off themselves. Um, and, and you know, I think the our ability to also manage the snow, I think I've, you know, I sort of mentioned to you before this idea of snow farming, you know, we, the, we as, we're as pretty good at it, apparently. We are, we are the world's best, <laughs> the world's best <laughs> snow farmers. We are, you know, our ability to sort of, you know, sniff a few centimetres of snow over there near that tree and we're just going to sort of, you know, inch it over onto the run. But you know, even, the, even the technology, the, the, they've got this technology now that sits inside the, um, the grooming machines where um, they've, they've basically mapped via GPS um, all of the runs in the summer and then when it snows, they can overlay that and through a display they can actually see how much snow um, is in front of them through a heads-up display on on the run. So as they're going down, they know that, okay, well, on the right-hand side there's you know, there might be a metre of snow and on the left-hand side there's 30 centimetres of snow, so let's you know move some snow from the right to the left. So that kind of use of technology, GPS, snowmaking, um, you know, I, th- I think sort of future-proofs the industry to a degree, um, as you know, as as the climate uh, is is no doubt changing. I noticed, <laughs> I noticed how you checked yourself there, Michael. Future proofing to a degree. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think you have to. I think you know there are certainly um, you know right throughout the world. You know, if you've been to Europe and some of these you know, little villages up in the Alps in Austria and uh, in Switzerland and France, and they're, you know, even those resorts which are used to having, you know, snow that sort of comes all the way from the very high Alpine up to the glaciers and these huge long runs that sort of meander down uh, down the sides of the hills and past all the barns and the, and the cows and everything and sort of end up in the village below. Well, without snowmaking, um, you know, you're not skiing to the down to the village as much as, as what we used to. So, you know, the world has had to um, embrace change and snowmaking itself has given a lot of flexibility. I mean, Beijing up in the mountains where they're set to host the 22 uh, Olympics is basically in an in a arid sort of desert like Arizona. I think they only get a couple of inches of natural snowfall a year, but they've carved out of these mountains these ski resorts um, and have got, uh, you know, basically man-made snow and they've created not only uh, obviously Olympic venues, but they've actually created out of it an industry and, you know, they've got a very ambitious target to have around 300 million Chinese skiers um, by the end of uh, the 2020s. So Without any natural snow around? 
with a barely any natural snow around, yeah. So wow. it is remarkable. It's certainly cold, though. I mean, they get. I mean, we thought Korea was cold, and Pyeongchang, and anyone who watched that would would have seen how cold it was there. I think Beijing is going to be even colder. Well, one person who was identified at a very young age, and no doubt will be mentioned a lot at the Beijing Olympics, is an absolute pioneer and legend of our sport in Australia that we tragically lost in June of this year. Chumpy mm. Pullen, two-time world champion snowboarder. Flag bearer at the 2014 Olympic Games, tragically died in a freediving accident earlier on this year. That must have been a, a different challenge altogether in leading the snow sport community through that grieving process, Michael. Yeah, it was. Um, oh, it was. It, it was an absolute shock. I mean, it's one of those ones where you sort of you know, you, you're calling people back, going, "Are you sure? Are you sure it's him?" You just can't imagine that somebody. At the absolute, you know, peak of their powers, their, um, you know, the, the, the thirty-two years of age, um, absolute peak physical condition, um, someone who just embraced uh, and loved life and loved the ocean as much as he loved the snow, uh, that this could happen to. But uh, look, it is it is an absolute tragedy, and I think. You know, you see the outpouring of emotion. You see the support that's come in from all over the world. Um, uh, he he was the kind of athlete that really, um, you know, lit up a room every time he, he walked into it. He had this incredible presence. Um, he was had this fierce determination uh, to be successful. He made everyone better around him. In fact, when I was watching during the first lockdown, um, the last dance mm. you know, with with Michael Jordan, the, the athlete of all the athletes that I've, I've I've worked with over time, the one athlete that came to mind most was Chumpy because he really, um, you know, at times he 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 would be a hard taskmaster on his teammates. He he wouldn't he wouldn't back off or you know he'd call a spade a spade and he would push people to be better. And if and if people weren't making maximum effort and weren't putting in best effort, he would he wouldn't have too much time for them after that because he was just so determined to raise the level of those around him because he knew that if the others were were better then he would be better and um yeah he is he is somebody that definitely uh he showed us the way and i think this is the this is the thing in all of the sports and disciplines that we've been successful in you've always had to have one person to show you the way mm. um it's always been an athlete that has taught the coaches how to how to coach and and has taught the support staff what to do and you know has has paved the way for other athletes i mean his legacy is in those athletes that are there now. You know, he basically retired seven days before he died. You know, he basically said, I'm hanging up the boots. I've, I've had enough. I've given everything. I want to, you know, focus on the next stage of my career. So, you know, his legacy is in is now in, in, in the program and, and, and what comes next. And he was, he was so multidimensional as well, wasn't he? I mean, you, you mentioned he was a great waterman. I, I mm. have spent a little bit of time just on his website in preparation for this interview, but I had no idea he was also such a talented musician. Is that breadth of interest common, particularly at Olympic level? Was Chumpy unique in that respect or is that something you find across a range of different athletes? I think it wasn't so unique amongst the really successful athletes. You know, I think the successful athletes that we've, that I've come across have had another dimension to them. And yeah, absolutely. They've had that dogged determination. Um, you know, Chumpy's probably, you know, with his music and, and things like that in terms of, you know, artistically and creatively, perhaps, you know, um, none of the other athletes that I've known have perhaps, you know, been at that level, but Dalbeg Smith. Australia's first and only Olympic gold medalist in moguls. 
in the early days. He he built uh, a business empire um, at the same time as he was training at the highest possible level. You know, I, I remember when I when I sat in Dale Beg Smith's lounge room uh, in Whistler with his parents. Um, he as a as a fourteen year old basically interviewed us. Um, and, 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 and when he wanted to come to Australia and come and ski for us, he, he was the one who was asking us about, you know, the, the, the type of coaching um, and the, the flexibility for him to pursue his business interests. I mean, this was, this was someone who really knew what they wanted to do. And so um, that was part of, the, uh, yeah, p- part of the process. Is that more reflective of, of someone's extraordinary mental ability, perhaps even as much, if not more so, than their physical ability, Michael? I think so. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, High performance athletes, there is something that sets them apart from everybody else. And there's and whether it is, you know, that ability to, you know, mentally focus at the time of competition, whether it is the, their ability to push harder than anybody else, take more risk. Um, but most of the successful ones I've seen, as I've said, have been able to express themselves and be successful in other areas of their life. So, uh, you know, with Chumpy, it was really around that uh, the, the creative outlet for sure. And, uh, and then, you know, people like Dale Big Smith, people like Elisa Camplin, who I worked with for many, many years, highly, highly intelligent and, uh, and would always query and question a lot of, you know, what we were doing. And again, uh, in similar to Chumpy, Elisa was the one who taught us about how, uh, how to be successful in a high performance way in what was a, a new world and an evolving world uh, in aerial skiing. Her story now is, is legendary also. Yeah, let's talk about that for a bit because you were Australia's top coach when Elisa Camplin won her gold medal, which was an amazing story for a bunch of reasons, not the least of which is she severely damaged her ankles, I think, from memory, just before the 2002 Winter Olympics. Yeah, we were we were in uh, we we're in Canada at the World Cup, just uh, in the, about six weeks out from the games. And uh, look, aerial skiing—it's an incredible sport. It's it's highly acrobatic. It's in fact, it's the highest um, degree of difficulty that that humans do in any in any acrobatic sport. The, the men are up to doing you know, triple somersaults with five twists in a laid out position. I mean, it is absolutely insane what they do, but there's such fine margins. And in that day in Canada, Lisa uh, didn't have enough speed off the jump and, uh, and came up short and, you know, the landing hill, it really, it's, it's like, uh, it's completely flat. And then it sort of goes over the edge down to a 37 degree landing and she landed right on the flat and, uh, yeah, uh, if not uh, broke badly, badly bruised her ankles. And so she was, uh, she was in a bad way leading up to the games, but, um, so at, at the games itself, though, it was it was interesting because um, you know Elisa was again the kind of athlete that was very very um, determined, um, really in control of, of her environment and her situation, didn't rely too much on others. And the first jump, she she jumped beautifully. She put herself um, you know, right into medal contention. She was in the top three. And what we knew was that if Elisa would land her second jump with the degree of difficulty that she had, if she would just land the jump, she'd be guaranteed a medal. And if not guaranteed a medal, pretty much guaranteed a gold. So the goal was for her to land that second jump, which as they have to, you got to land two jumps to, to to win the Olympic game. So my job as the top coach was really about uh, monitoring the speed. So the speed, you know, they come down this in run. They're on they're on 150 centimeter skis, which are about you know 10 centimeters wide. They they hit speeds of about 60 kilometers an hour, and then go up this ramp, which is you know, four metres high and, and launch themselves, you know, seven, eight metres into the air. And, and so it's it really comes down to this sort of um, absolute um, kilometre per hour uh, of what you need to hit the jump at. And so I'd noticed that the that the speed throughout the afternoon um, was speeding up. And Elisa came up to the top and she was, you know, she was all amped up and she's going, I'm going to nail this, I'm going to nail this. 
I said, yep, you are. And she said, I'm going to take a big step up. I'm going to really give this. I said, no, no, Elisa, I think, you know, I, think it's, uh, I think it's speeding up a bit. I've been watching the other athletes, looking at their speeds. I think it's speeding up. I think you should start right where you started the first jump or maybe a little bit lower. No, no, I'm going to take a big step up. I want to go faster. And so we're having this argument on the in-run at the Olympic Games. And, you know, Elisa doesn't like losing an argument. <laughs> and so, I bet you don't so we're either. Arguing. That's a tough situation. No, I know. It's very tough. It's very <laughs> tough. But uh, we're arguing backwards and forwards and I think you should stand. No, I should stand here and I should stand up. Anyway, the next thing I know, the countdown clock starts and you've got 20 seconds. You've got 20 seconds. And if you don't go before the 20 seconds, you know, you're disqualified. So we're still arguing and the countdown clock's going. Because so anyway, so, so um, you know, Elisa looks at me, so I'm going to take a step up. I said, Elisa, I stared her in the eyes. I said, if you ever effing listen to me once in your life, it's now. Start from right here. <laughs> and I think she saw in my eyes that I was pretty serious. She started from that spot. She was fast, okay? So, you know, she just- When she hit the jump, just, you mean she was going fast. She just, yeah, yeah, she was fast. She landed on the back of her skis and hung on. And, uh, you know, if she'd taken one metre step up, she would have landed flat on her back. That would have changed her life forever. So that's a really critical decision-making moment right there. There's no rule book for that, no. right? What do you put that down to in terms of Elisa listening to you, that one moment in her life, as you mentioned, and it yeah. obviously worked out brilliantly for everyone? Well, it did. And, you know, I, I think the flip side to this and, and the, the tragic side to this is on the other side, you know, Jackie Cooper, who was our world champion coming into the games and she was the favourite. She was out probably the favourite ahead of Elisa to, to win a medal. She was training the day before. And again, Jackie, hugely experienced athlete, very uh, in control of her situation, but she wasn't training well. She was, and you know, came around to the last jump. And what I didn't say to Jackie on that day before was, Jackie, I think you should stop. I think you've had enough. I think you're not jumping well. You're not gonna, not gonna achieve anything by this. And again, she was really amped up. And so, you know, I'd suggested it to Jackie. I said, well, you know, do you reckon maybe just, you know, pull the pin today? No, no, I'm going again. You sure? It's not much point. No, I'm doing it. And being an experienced athlete, she owned that decision. And and, uh, in that last jump that she took, she blew her knee out and um, wasn't able to compete at the Olympics. And so I think not standing up in that moment and really speaking my truth, really not, you know, being more forceful as I had to be in that moment with Elisa, uh, was probably the lesson that I learned not 48 hours before. And so I think you know, having the opportunity to be faced with that same decision and act on it, um, I think was you know, was really what motivated me to get involved there at that time. But, you know, I mean, look, it, at the end of the day, it's a team effort and Elisa had to, had to land the jump. But, um, you know, I think I obviously had some small part to play. Because how long do you actually work with the athletes in the lead up to the Games itself? Presumably a lot of it comes down to trust and proving your ability to one another through the course of the time period that you do work together. I'm assuming you don't have a stack of time to build that relationship and that trust. Do you got any strategies or tactics that you like to come back to in terms of making sure that you get the most out of the athletes that you do work with? And similarly... The people that you work with in business, because I can only imagine that, you know, trust is a, a key component of the role given the amount of stakeholders that you work with at Snow Australia as well. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, I think when it, when it comes to, to athletes, you build up trust over time by, you know, by being consistent, by, you know, by, by doing what you say, by not, you know, by not over over-promising um, and, uh, and under-delivering. I think, you know, you, 
you need to show the athletes that you know that, that you're there for them, that you are you know, prepared to do whatever it takes because they're doing whatever it takes. So you need to be able to do whatever it takes. And I think in many cases, and particularly you know in a coach's case, you know you need to be able to check your ego. You need to be able to check your ego at the door. You need to be able to say, look, you know this is it's actually not about me. This is about you know this is about the athlete. And ultimately, if the athlete does well, then we all do well. And I think you know I, I think I've. I've carried that mindset through into into a business life. Is I've I don't think I've ever really sort of um, you know, let let an ego let my ego get in the way. And I think you know being being prepared to to understand uh, you know what you, what you don't know and and putting your hand up and and I guess surrounding yourself with people that can that can help you and 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 lift you up and and fill in the gaps. Um, I think is is as relevant in business as as it is being an athlete. And I think the best athletes have been the ones that. You know, know where they need help and haven't been afraid to ask for it. So who are the people that help you most on your journey, Michael? Um, Dean Gosper, I believe, who's the president of Snow Australia and was involved in your original appointment, continues to be a mentor for you. Yeah, I mean, uh, D- Dean would certainly be one. You know, he's been more than a, a, a chairman um, and a, a mentor for me in many ways, been a father figure. I mean, I lost my dad at a relatively young age, you know, so my early 20s. And so that's a pretty sort of uh, interesting time in your life when, you know, you're trying to sort of make sense of the world and, and, and make some you know, pretty big decisions about your life. And so I think someone like Dean, you know, had, and I think, you know, we've just, there's a, there's a great uh, respect uh, and above all, um, we have fun. It's interesting. It's not often that people mention fun in their in mm. working relationships, but and I don't know whether it's a sport related thing because one of the observations I'd have about Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson is that they just had a lot of fun together. What role does that play in business for you, Michael, and getting the job done over the course of the last eighteen years? Well, for me, fun is one of the most important things. You know, it, it might not be right out of the textbook, but for me, it's what makes me tick. I mean, I, I think I've, uh, I, I sort of try to bring humour to to most of the things I do. I think, um, you know, I, I think people that know me would probably say I'm fairly easygoing, and uh, but at the same time. If you have a, a good vision of where you want to be and where you want to get to, um, and you're prepared to, you know, to, to take on lots of different point of views, and you know, you can do that in a serious way. But I think the journey has to be fun. Maybe that's been reflective of why we've been able to keep our team together for so long. We've we've had so many staff stay with us because I think you know that 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 fun um, I think permeates through into the culture and and I think it it it, it makes people really sort of uh, want to row in the same direction. It's a hard thing to KPI though, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. It's true. You know, just uh, you know, have fun. Yeah, it is, it is <laughs> hard. Have but, fun. But I, team. <laughs> go have fun. I know. Yeah, it is. It is. It is hard. I guess it but, helps if you but, get to spend a fair bit of time on snow together as well. Well, that's right. I mean, we all do try to get up into the mountains, and uh, you know, it's funny we, we, when you do have that time. When as a, as a management team, we might all be sort of skiing around for for, for a couple of hours. You say, yeah, like, how good is this? You know, this is this is a this is a great this is a great day to be in the office. Speaking of fun and fun at scale, but also coaching, one of the biggest coaching-related programs in the country is actually the inter-school competition, which continues. It's got to be probably one of the single biggest drivers of participation in the competition pathway. What is it, 19,000 young athletes from around the country at last count from various states and territories. I've got to ask a question because I I happen to coincide with a lot of these inter-school weekends up at Mount Buller. There's a lot of Mm. private school kids running around that mountain on those weekends has skiing become a, a, a white bread sport? Oh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I think. I think certainly um, there is skiing is without doubt um, has its challenges in terms of its uh, you know it, 
it, it can be intimidating both financially and culturally at times. But I think the actual lift ticket component is is actually pretty good value. It's just when you sort of put together all the other elements that that does make it expensive. But I think you know it's. There's definitely, you know, what you're seeing at the inter schools and what you're seeing in the private schools. You know, there's certainly that element. Um, there is, uh, there are people that uh, that take it, you know, very seriously, and they're up there and they're very competitive. Um, but you know, as much as they're doing that, they're also having fun being out on the snow, uh, skiing and snowboarding around with their mates. And uh, you know, look, I think that's one of the great challenges for our sport is to make it more accessible. Um, to keep the price down so that the you know the average person can can get up there and enjoy it. It's a, such a beautiful part of the world and I think, you know, the industry faces the challenge like a lot of seasonal industries that it's got to make its money in 12 to 14 weeks and so that that just comes with, with the price tag. So I think, you know, ultimately the accessibility for, for people to go up skiing um, is certainly there in terms of, you know, the, the proximity from Melbourne um, if you're in Victoria and then the New South Wales resorts. But, you know, I think, uh, yeah, there's certainly an element of, uh, of, of, of cost to it, which um, unfortunately uh, no great way around. And understanding that your funds are limited as head of, you know, the leading industry body in the mm. country, are there any initiatives that you're focused on in terms of improving the diversity of snow sports in Australia? Um, look, one of the, the things that we recognise is that the majority of athletes that have been successful in high performance, and so, you know, there's only a very small number of athletes that actually make it through, obviously, onto you know, national teams, Olympic teams, and then even much fewer that are ultimately successful at the highest level. But the majority of athletes... Uh, from Australia that have been successful have come from the local areas, from those regional communities in and around the mountains, you know, from Cooma, from Jindabyne, Chumpy out of Mansfield, for example, um, you know, Tora uh, Bright. Britt Cox, yeah, Tora Bright from Cooma, Britt Cox is a mogul skier, world champion, she's from, um, from Falls Creek and from uh, Mount Beauty. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of, so we really, um, you know, obviously we, we, invest in talent um, as it comes through but if you have a talent that comes from the comes from the local area then that's that's a special talent and so I think you know they're that that's what history tells us they've probably got you know better access to the resorts Um, maybe as you said you know cost cost wise if it's just up the road and they go up and they come back they're not staying on the mountain it's 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 more affordable Um, so you know we we're spending a lot of effort and putting a lot of our resources into you know really trying to support that emerging talent level you know so the athletes that we've seen that have potential um you know that maybe just need that extra kick along because once they actually get into the institute system once they get into that high performance system um the financially it does definitely become easier because the system you know covers a lot more of their costs but it's getting from that you know out of mum and dad's wallet if you like uh, and and you know mum and dad and the families having to fund everything from, from getting it from that level uh, into the institute level that's the real challenge and that's where we're sort of spending a lot of uh, a lot of effort and resources and presumably it's not just about where people come from in a geographical sense or even you know what ethnicity they might actually be Para-Olympic skiing is extraordinary. And since chatting to you for the first time a couple of weeks ago, I've had the pleasure of watching some of these Paralympic athletes just ripping down the mountain on YouTube. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I've known a lot of the para-athletes for a long time, but we never really ran those programs until 2018. So it's only in the last two years we've actually run the programs and and really got to know the athletes. Before that, they were those programs were run by the you know Paralympics Australia as the as the main body um, and also the AIS. So 
Um, while I'd, I'd known a lot of the athletes and marvelled at, at, at some of their feats, I, I never really understood the stories and and uh, and and their challenges until they became part of our program and we really started to get to know them. And so, you know, I have incredible, incredible respect for um, for the athletes uh, that we have. The you know the the, the challenges that they've overcome um, just in in life, and for them to then go out and do what they do on snow, which you know. They are every bit as extreme as as the able-bodied athletes in terms of how how fast they're going and uh, and and some of the you know the dangers they put themselves into. You know, to have have a visually impaired skier hurtle down the mountain at you know eighty k's an hour without being able to see, literally following a guide in front of them who's who's talking on a headset, you know, saying you know turn left, turn right. It is remarkable. And they actually have their goggles blacked out to ensure that they literally cannot see a thing. It's it's That's part right. of the rule book is that they have to have their goggles physically blacked out from any light to negate That's any right. advantage right. that yeah. anyone with partial sight might have. Absolutely. If you haven't seen it, then you should check out the sit skiers doing these stonking airs into the top of Corbett's Couloir at Jackson Hole. I've stood at the top of that run and let me tell you, it would make even the best double diamond black skiers weak yeah. at the knees. It's that steep. I remember uh, I, was, I was really good friends with um, – uh, back in the day uh, with Michael Norton, who was one of our pioneers, not Michael Milton, uh, but Michael Norton, who was another sit-ski pioneer, and he was incredible. He would he would uh, go down these incredible couloirs and off these cliffs in his sit-ski and, and featured in quite a few movies. And he was a guy who um, was probably, you know, one of the first people I'd ever met who, who you know, even despite the fact that he's, he's in a wheelchair, he would just, you know, push boundaries, push boundaries in a way that you'd, you'd never even imagine. I remember one day I was driving... We were heading up to a premiere, actually, of his um, of, of a movie that he was involved in. I was at Mount Buller. I was down uh, down around the, the base there, and was driving straight up to the uh, to the A bomb. For those that know Mount Buller, it's just, it was straight up Summit Road before they built the the new road. And I said to him, I said, "Oh, I'm, oh Mike, you want to lift up?" He said, "Yeah, it'd be great." I said, "All right, you know, you jump in, and I'll put your chair." He says, "No, no, it's just he said you go. I'll just hang on to the tow bar." <laughs> I said, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure about it. No, you be right, you be right. He said, and, he said, and he said, whatever you do, don't stop when you get to the A-bomb. Just keep going. <laughs> so I was like, all right, Mick. So I sort of, you know, had my head out the window. I'm like, you're right. He's like, yeah, I'm right. I said, you're right. So, yep. So we're heading up the mountain. I'm driving up. And he's like, he says, don't stop. Keep going, keep going. And the next thing I know, I look out my mirror. I've gone past the A-bomb. He has sort of let go on purpose, veered off, and launched into the foyer <laughs> of the A-bomb. You know, like somersaults down the stairs and he's like, you know, gets up with his both arms in the air and he's like, you oh, Well done. So Most able-bodied skiers couldn't pull tough. that off, let alone someone tough. in a sit ski. That's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So, Michael, you mentioned Shanna, your wife, who isn't just a life coach but is a very accomplished life coach and, and mm. published author. Not often that we meet people who've got two coaches sitting under one roof what sort of dynamic does that make for at home and what sort of difference has Shanna made to, to your own career? Oh, well, I mean, you know, Shanna's, as you said, incredibly accomplished coach, um, you know, and, and the biggest gift that she's given is through her, you know, through the books that she's written and the life plan, which is, um, you know, it, it, that has done, that's, that's a book that has gone um, absolutely um, all over Australia, in fact, around the world. And, and, and is basically her methodology and her approach as a life coach and, and in the book. And so, I mean, being married to a life coach, I, I think it sort of happens a little bit by osmosis. She's smart enough not to just sort of sit there and, you know, literally sort of 
uh, you know, tell me what to do. But I'm sure that I'm sort of some sort of human guinea pig and she's trying her, her various, you know, strategies and methods on me. But uh, look, you know, she is, um, you know, she's somebody that, uh, you know, I'm absolutely in awe of in terms of, you know, how she can uh, influence the lives of people, how she's able to, you know, life coaching really is about asking questions um, and, you know, really that everybody has the answers uh, inside of them. So she asks the questions in the right order and the way that she's been able to inspire and and, and unlock um, the potential of so many people. And I sort of see the um, testimonies that come in and some of the things that people have had to say about how she's influenced them. And, you know, she is amazing in that regard. Do the kids ski? What, what would you say to the kids if the kids came to you and said, Dad, I, I want to go to the Olympics one day? Uh, well, I'd sort of, you know, maybe suggest they sort of uh, go into the raffle to buy a ticket and get a plane <laughs> fair up. No, no. Look, you know, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, both both our kids ski. I mean, in fact, Mia snowboards. Um, uh, Jack is 16 skis. And they're, they're good, accomplished skiers. But I have seen hundreds and if not thousands of athletes come through the system over the years. And, and, I've, and I've never seen anyone be successful who's had to be driven or motivated by their parents. And so there's a lot of parents out there, I think, that do live vicariously through their kids and start out with all the best intentions trying to motivate the kids. But anything they ever want to do, um, you know, we would be there 100% supporting them all the way. But, um, you know, to this point, being an elite athlete um, hasn't kind of uh, factored into the equation. And what about dad? I mean, you've you've been doing what you do for a long time. One of my favourite pieces in The Last Dance was was when Phil Jackson was asked about his time at the Bulls and there was this point where, you know, the interviewer asked Jordan first whether it bothered him that he never got the chance to go for a seventh title. Jordan was devastated. Then they asked Phil Jackson the same question and Phil goes, not at all. I knew it was time. When will you know it's time? Well, I've got a I've got a checklist, you know, that I sort of um, it, it might not be a physical checklist that I look at every day, but you know, I sort of am constantly asking myself, you know, in terms of this role in particular, you know, am I am I having fun? Am I enjoying it? Um, if the answer is yes, great, keep going. Am, am I, you know, am I am I still motivated? Am I still passionate? Are, are my staff still motivated and passionate? Do I feel like my staff are with me? Do I have a supportive board and a supportive chair? And, you know, importantly, are we still achieving? Are there still goals that we're setting that we're achieving um, and being meaningful? And so as long as all those things are yes, um, I've kind of put this notion of the fact that, you know, you have to have put a time limit on a role to the side because I think it's just such a unique journey. And well, maybe I am closer to the end because I'm starting to think more about legacy and, and, the, and, and the kind of projects that are really exciting me now, things that are sort of the big legacy projects. So we've just, you know, we're about to build a national training centre in Jindabyne. And, you know, if we can build that as a, as a home uh, for our winter sport programs, as a world-class facility, you know, we've been successful in getting some money through the New South Wales government, $5 million to start that off and, and looking for more funds to really build that up. So, you know, delivering that facility is a real passion project. And then more recently, and since COVID, we've sort of accelerated um, you know, the idea of going back and recognising all of our past skiers whoever, and snowboarders, whoever competed for Australia. Um, and there's about 200 of them. And we've gone back and we've we've captured their stories and we've interviewed them and we'll present them with a with a Snow Australia medal at, at a time when we, when we can all come together. But uh, to go back and connect the past with the present and the future of the sport, I think is something that's really become 
a huge passion. So, you know, maybe it's a bit like nesting, you know, just before you have a baby. You sort of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm just sort of starting to tidy up all the loose ends, but uh, no, still, still enjoy it. And, um, you know, but when any of those things, any of those things don't, uh, don't tick the box anymore, I, I would happily, happily exit stage left and say, well, that's, um, that's been a hell of a ride. Well, mate, don't be in too much of a rush because I tell you what, if the measure of any career is based on how much an individual's done, you've done a heck of a lot, not just for the sport as an athlete and as a coach and as a commentator at the Olympics, but also as you know, the longest serving CEO of a sporting organisation in the country. You've got a stack to be proud of, not just in your own career, but in your life as a dad as well. So, Michael, thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change. Really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Steve. Pleasure to chat.